From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hey everybody, welcome again to Open Line Friday here on EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. Jack Williams is away today. I'm Tom Price. Uh, glad to be here with America's favorite theologian, Mr. Colin Donovan. How are you? It's good to be here another week. Uh, indeed. I count every week a victory. I like that. I like that a lot. How's your Lent going so far? Well, so far it's been busy. You know, nobody says to the rest of the world, it's Lent, will you slow things down, you know? Yeah, it seems like we're busier than ever. You know, well, I mean, in the business we're in, obviously, because Lent's a big deal for Catholics and Christians (laughs) generally, for many of our non-Catholic listeners, too. Uh, You know, so yeah, it is a big deal, and... um, well, I mean, for Catholic Radio, this is a this is a season. This is our season. You know, uh, you you're not going to hear much about Lent anywhere else. In uh, you know, I, I guess generically Christian radio, right, or or yeah. any other station. Well, and even specifically a liturgical season like Lent or Christmas time, which yeah. seems to disappear on December 26. Sure does. Um, you know. The Catholics, Orthodox, and, and the other liturgical churches, I think the Lutherans and the Episcopalians to some extent have mm. the liturgical regime. Yeah. Uh, there's some consideration of those seasons, but for much of the of, of Protestant Christianity, there isn't. And I think that's, uh, although I've noticed a good deal more interest in recent, in recent times for the, these ideas of preparation for the celebration of the events of our Lord's life. And I think that's how it got started in the early church. Uh, and it serves a very worthwhile Christian purpose of having the mystery of Jesus Christ, his life, his ministry, his teaching, his divinity, his salvation, the salvation he won for us, basically front and center throughout mm-hmm. the course of the year. Because you always have a reason to reflect on some new element of it. And that's, I think that's important whether you're a Catholic or a liturgical Christian or not. And there's something to be learned every year, I think. At least I'm still learning uh, a whole lot, you know, year to year to year. Right, because, uh, I mean, authors are are writing new things about it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of old things that can be read in the fathers of the church, for those who have a mind to do it. Uh, Much of that is available, like uh, Mm -hmm. newadvent.org has the fathers of the church there. Uh, you can read the, you can get collections of the Fathers of the Church. If for your Lenten practice you wanted to do the Liturgy of the Hours every day in the Office of Readings, there is a reading, there's the reading of the Gospel, and there uh-huh. is a reading from, uh, typically from the Father of the Church, a Father of the Church or the Magisterium. And you get the whole gamut of the Eastern and Western Fathers and the and the different councils of the Church and, and, and the modern Popes as well. So, uh, and they reflect on the liturgy of the moment, the liturgy of the day or the liturgy of the season. So that's another way to learn about by by praying the liturgy of the hours every day. Yes, indeed. Kicking off uh, Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN Radio. Our phone number 
288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. A little pro tip for you. Call early because uh, the phones do get kind of clogged up, especially on a Friday. We would love to get your call on today's program at 833-288-3986. Going to lead off here with an email from Joan in Rye, New Hampshire. Joan says, I thought I heard that the Blessed Mother requested the Pope to consecrate Russia to her Immaculate Heart, but not all the bishops did it, and if they would now, the fighting would stop in, uh, you know, Russia right, and, right. you know, is this correct? Well, it's correct that uh, Our Lady in the uh, in appearing to the three children in Fatima in 1917, anticipating that she would do this in the future, mm-hmm. said to the, the children, to Sister Lucia, that she would come to ask for the consecration of Russia, that by this means it would be saved and it would cease to propagate its errors throughout the world. And she did that in 1929. And the church dawdled, as uh, the church tends to do, <laughs> and she kept about to claim, to to decry this, you know, why haven't this, hasn't this been done? She asked two things, actually. She asked of the hierarchy, she asked that they would make this consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart, because obviously Russia was the place from which the uh, communist era would be propagated, Mm -hmm. not under the name of the country of Russia, and I think that's an interesting point, but under the name of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. The USSR. Yeah. So it was Russia when Our Lady said it. It became the USSR, and they did propagate their errors because the Church did not act quickly. But progressively, the popes did. Pius XII in 1942 and again in the 1950s, mentioning Russia specifically in the 1950s. In his first consecration, he only mentioned to the world. But he'd also been asked that by another mystic, Blessed Alexandrina de Costa, uh, who died in 1955, and she was alive, and she wrote the Pope saying, Our Lord desires the consecration of the world of the Immaculate Heart. So he sort of covered two mystical bases in, in making that. But it wasn't together with all the bishops, in union with all the bishops. I see. So John Paul went to Fatima in 1982 to give thanksgiving for surviving the assassination attempt because he had then taken got more serious about that message of Fatima, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he consecrated the world with a special mention of nations needing it in 82, but it was just himself. In 84, the bishops of the world, in a moral union, uh, as well as many of them in their cathedrals on the very same day, March 25th, 1984, consecrated Russia, uh, or consecrated the world of the Immaculate Heart with a special nation of those, mention of those nations that needed it. And what happened in the course of the next several years was break the fall of the Soviet Union. First, all their munitions exploded as mysteriously. Important people in their plans for the invasion of Europe died. Yep. And they were replaced by Gorbachev, who then did the whole, uh, you know, internal... Glasnost. Uh, uh, Glasnost, and yeah. then he did the external mm-hmm. uh, detente, as it were. Yeah, yeah. And then the Soviet Union dissolved. Now, some people say that wasn't the right consecration, and that didn't satisfy satisfy it. So they, Rome asked Sister Lucia, who asked Our Lady, who said, the Lord has accepted it, he will keep his word. So in the context of the Soviet Union, that was done. Now we truly have a context of Russia as opposed to 
Russia, which became the communist Soviet Union. And this is, I think, in the context of that fratricide, because these are all Slavic peoples in that mm-hmm. part of the world, mm-hmm. the Ukrainian, the Latin bishops of the, uh, the Ukrainian right Latin bishops, I got that wrong, the Ukrainian <laughs> Latin bishops yes. asked the Holy Father to consecrate <clears throat> Russia and the Ukraine. I think that's a marvelous idea because we have a new context today of a militant Russia wanting to recover its all these entities that were formerly part of a greater Russia, which mm-hmm. then also the Soviet Union and so on. And this is a, a different threat and a new threat. And it would match the, the possibility of the wording exactly. When it was done in 84, you had the Soviet Union, and many peoples were involved in the Soviet Union, not just Russia. Mm. Uh, and it accomplished what it could do in those times. We have a new fact, a new context, a new situation. It's worth doing again. If nothing else, those who have been saying, well, it was not done right, will be satisfied. And those of us who say it was done right, but it needs to be done again, will be satisfied. And I think Our Lady was always pleased when we consecrate ourselves, our families, our dioceses, our nations to her, because she's always prepared to act and to intercede on our behalf. And we can never go wrong in in taking advantage of those opportunities. And we definitely have one in the Ukraine today. Listen, I may be a little naive on this, but I'm praying for the conversion of Mr. Putin. Now, that may seem like pretty far-fetched, but, you know, Mm -hmm. with God, all things are possible. Right. And it does mean, you know, the question of what does conversion mean? Because before the fall of the Soviet Union, the Russian people did not have the legal right and possibility of freely and openly practicing their faith. They were confined to what the government allowed them to do. They got that right, and now we need to bring about the union of Slavic Christians and hopefully the union of all Christians. And this is the moment, I think. Certainly a lot to pray for. Thank you so much for that, Colin. When we come back, we'll be talking with Paula Paula is in Ontario. Also, Don calling in from Omaha this afternoon. Brian is a first-time caller in Duluth, Minnesota, which is where uh, our own Teresa Tamio was earlier this week, uh, speaking at a group of uh, Real Presence Radio, our great affiliate there. So we're looking forward to hearing from Brian and everybody else at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you prefer, shoot us an email openline at EWTN.com. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Answering all of your theological questions here with Colin Donovan, our Vice President for Theology on EWTN's Open Line Friday. That number one more once is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 
1-800-288-3986. One of the highlights, one of the uh, liturgical highlights of every weekend is Sunday Vespers here on EWTN, and that is at 6 p.m. Eastern where you can join the Franciscan Missionaries of the Eternal Word as they celebrate Vespers and Benediction of the Blessed Sacrament from Our Lady of the Angels Chapel right here on the EWTN campus. Check it out, 6 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio Essentials. That's available on the EWTN app and by going to EWTNradio.net. And, of course, it's on uh, TV as well, yeah, right? I believe so. Yep. All right, there you go. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Paula in Ontario listening on the EWTN app that we just mentioned. Hey, Paula, happy Friday. What's on your mind today? Hi, um, Colin. Um, it's, um, I've been wondering about this for some time because I heard that um, not even God can make something which is in itself intrinsically evil, like murder, that it's not intrinsically evil. But that, again, would um, almost um, contradict his omnipotence. I know it's disgusting that he would not want to make it, something which is okay. But on the other hand, then, as I said, it contradicts his omnipotence. Yeah. Well, it doesn't actually, really, because... What, is, what, what do we say God is? Theologically, we say God is love. In other words, that he is... Love means that he is goodness. He's also justice. But everything that we can describe as a good can be said of God. And he is this simply without any complexity. We're so much more complex than God is because we can hold good and evil together in one, from one minute to another, one minute doing good and one minute doing evil. God can, must act in accordance with his nature, because that's what it is to be something. We don't act like angels. We ought not to act, act like animals, although we can, and we do. Uh, we only need to look around our world to see that. But we should act like human beings with, a, with an intellect and a will and with our, uh, an embodied person. And so God acts only in accordance with his nature, which is he is the supreme good. And so it depends now, you can get down into the particulars. If that's the general straight statement of what God is and why he is good and only does good. We recognize as a logical fact that you can't hold two contradictions together. Something can't be both hot and cold. Something can't be both right and wrong. And so because they're opposites. And so this is also true in the nature of God. It would be contrary to that nature to, to do something opposed to it. But there are ways in which God does turn evil into good. Uh, we say this uh, because we have a proper understanding of what's taking place there. So, with far as the creatures which he made, something is good because it conforms to its nature. And to the extent that it doesn't conform to its nature, it's evil. So, the nature of the human person is to know truth and to do good as God knows truth and to do good. Mm -hmm. And so evil, or moral evil, as we say, is to, for us not to live up, to do something that is deficient of that good. 
We do this, as Aquinas uh, always said, because we see, not because we want to do evil simply, but because we see something uh, as, uh, as some kind of an apparent good. Uh, so you can think of somebody stealing something. They think, well, he never uses that, you know, that iPad. I never, he's never using it. <laughs> He doesn't well, need that. He doesn't need that. I can do be good for me. That's he right. won't even miss it. That's right. If I saw four in his room, actually, he'll not. He won't <laughs> miss it. Well, but, but that's still wrong, right? You know. So it's not a question of uh, a deficiency in that sense. It's a deficiency in the moral sense. Sure. Now there are material things can be made good can be made out of evil. I like it whenever my wife makes takes some. Uh, rotting bananas and make something good out of it. Banana bread. Banana bread. Banana Bring it bread. On. Yeah. And so God can do that as well. He won't intervene in the soul of the person and make them do good when their own will, their freedom, which he gave them, they've decided, I'm going to do something which is wrong. He won't intervene in there. That would contradict the good of the freedom of the human nature that he gave them. But he can make good out of material evils. He can restore good weather. He, can, uh, he could stop the bad weather, as our Lord did on the Lake of Gennesaret, on the mm-hmm. Sea of Galilee. Yep, yep. So material evils, God can correct because they're simply material. It doesn't in, involves correcting something which he originally designed and desired not to be, have that evil associated with it. But because of the fall of the angels and man material and spiritual and moral evils entered into the world. So to recover from those, to correct those things, that doesn't cause him to break this, essentially his own promise to himself that I make man this way and I won't violate this way in which I made him, gave him freedom. So you have to be clear about what it, what the evil is mm-hmm. that God is correcting. and But in the case of moral evils, the evil is discipline. The good is discipline. That's a way of correcting because it draws the person to make the decision by their free will to undo or to not do or to undo what they were doing wrong. And that's what God does with us. He uses, he uses the material things of our suffering and of storms and all of these things uh-huh. to, to help us reform. Uh, but as for simply taking evil and changing it into good, in the case of moral evil, he can correct it in this way by the discipline way, the same way a parent would correct a child. He can't enter into the person and force them to do something contrary to their own will, however, because they gave them that freedom, and that's a greater good even than the evil which they are doing in the moment. All right. Paula, thank you so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Open line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN Radio. Let's go now. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, Let's go to Don in Omaha, listening on the great Spirit Catholic Radio. Hey, Don, what's on your mind today, sir? Well, I'm wondering if Colin knows. I've heard that Martin Luther discussed or had some inclination to take some of the books out of the New Testament. Uh, that would include Hebrews, Revelation, the book of James, mm-hmm. one of the books of Peter. Does, 
Do you know anything about that, Colin? Is that true? Uh, yes, it it is true. Uh, I believe he called James a straw epistle. Uh, we I'm not sure if he explicitly said that this straw epistle was uh, was contradicting his teaching that. Uh, you know, man is justified by faith alone or not, but it does because James asserts the, that, you know, faith, of course, touches our intellect. We were just talking about this. Yeah, yeah. Faith touches the intellect. Charity is something that is in the will. Can we be saved by faith alone? Or as James says, if you have faith, you're going to do the charity as well. You could have You could have dead faith and that doesn't save. So, I think he found James contradictory to uh, his doctrine of salvation by faith alone. I'm not sure about Hebrews. That was when I was I was making a note based on your question, and I know that Hebrews was another one. I'm not quite sure what his logic was. You know, it used to be that Hebrews was counted among the letters of Paul, but we've never really had any clear, you know, historical uh Proof of that, other than it was sort of appended to all of his other epistles. I'm not sure if the authorship was in question. Likewise, with the book of Revelation, over the centuries, some questions the uh, the authorship. And in the early church, in the fathers, in the second and third centuries, you will find that in different lists of the fathers, there were also, you know, some questions about some of these sane books. So whether it's in the era before the magisterium decided or in the area after the magisterium decided, it all goes back on who has the authority to decide. And the fathers didn't think they had the authority to decide. They were arguing as to, well, is this inspired? Before the church had said in any definitive way. Mm -hmm. But beginning with uh, already in the fourth century, the, the canons as proposed by Ecclesiastical writers were almost identical. Uh-huh. Uh, and then uh, the Pope in 380 in the Synod in Rome, he gave a canon, which was then used by Jerome and it be in his Latin Vulgate, and it became the canon of the Middle Ages and was affirmed by different councils, affirmed by Augustine in North Africa twice against the Docetus. Uh, it was affirmed by the Council of Trent against the Reformers. Uh, and so... Uh, there you have a decision of authority. So ultimately, I think it makes a very clear point that the judgment of one individual or even a uh, non, uh, you know, a tradition, merely a human tradition or custom of practice is insufficient to decide what the canon is. It took an act of authority of those to whom Christ entrusted the care of the church, which was the apostles. And, of course, that leads to the whole question of apostolic succession, Mm -hmm. and we could be here for another five hours. But the point still gets back to, is there authority in the world given by Christ to make these decisions? And the Catholic and the Orthodox answer is there is. And, of course, those who have rejected those authorities say there isn't. All right. And, Don, thank you so much for your uh, question. I know we're heading to break, but uh, I do want to get this in from Angela listening on YouTube today from St. Catherine in Jamaica. Angela says, what is the Catholic's position on uttering or saying the word Y-H-W-H, Yahweh? Uh, the, the word is understood to be probably the best reconstruction of what the Tetragrammaton, the four consonants used in the Hebrew Scripture for God, is pronounced. 
Uh, it is a sacred name, and uh, Pope Benedict, uh, when he was, I think he was still prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, noted that uh, because of that sacredness in the liturgy, it uh-huh. shouldn't be used. Now, there are Bibles that that do mention it, mm. and there were some Bibles being used in the liturgy which are no longer uh, used. Most mo- notably, I think the Jerusalem Bible was, which Mother used on the sure air. Sure did, yeah. Uh, but that for spiritual reading and so on, we can see it, we can say it. But uh, in liturgical usage in the church, the church does not use it. Okay, very good. Angela, great to hear from you in Jamaica. And uh, in a moment here, we'll be talking with Brian in Duluth, also Johnny in Lincoln, Nebraska. Tim is in Idaho, Janet in Columbus, Ohio. Lots more straight ahead on Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. Stay with us. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey, it looks like uh, two lines open. If you'd like to uh, call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's show. Although, you know, Fridays are a little bit different because a theological fine point sometimes cannot be wrapped up in a three-minute phone call. we got to go a little longer than that, right? We do. We try not to go too long. No, but, but you know, you want to be fair, and, and you want right. to give as thorough an answer as possible. So that's what we're doing at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Here is Brian now, first-time caller in Duluth, listening on the great Real Presence Radio. Hey, Brian, what's on your mind today? Good afternoon. I, I believe that a person becomes a Catholic when they're confirmed, when they're about 15, 16 years old. That's my opinion. doesn't mean it's true. What's the Church teaching on when a person becomes Catholic? And when you die, can a non-Catholic be buried in a Catholic cemetery? And why is that okay for a non-Catholic to be buried in a Catholic cemetery? All right. Okay. Well, the first question is, the Church's teaching is that by baptism we are baptized into Christ, and we are necessarily baptized into ch- the church, which is uh, Christ's bride. In other words, it's the union of of those on earth who are represent head and members, uh, us the faithful, the head represented in the hierarchy. And so on baptism, the infant or uh, any person is baptized. Uh, there's an interesting point uh, out of the pre-Vatican II practice is um, the Council explained, Second Vatican Council explained how non-Catholics are in perfect communion with the Church. The practice before the Second Vatican Council, when you converted to Catholicism, was first to release you from the excommunication from, of heresy or schism, as the case may be. That presumes the same fact that by baptism, even those who do not know and believe that the Catholic Church is Christ's Church, by being baptized into Christ, they necessarily are brought into relationship with the Church, which is imperfect until they then are united, come into perfect union with the Church. And we even use the language that suggests that today, that somebody is coming into full communion, suggests Absolutely, that they were in some communion before, but not full, just as the old practice of absolving from the excommunications and so on uh, did as well. 
Uh, it didn't make a moral judgment about whether they knowingly were guilty of those, but of materially uh, acknowledging that. On the second part of that, when a, per- when a Catholic is buried, if it is not a Catholic cemetery, the priest will bless the ground and he will, the person will be buried in it. So if you're buried in the public cemetery, for example, in a town, Uh then the the ground in which you are buried is is consecrated. Mm -hmm. It's blessed. Mm -hmm. The only difference is that the bishop has done that by a nice ceremony in the case of a Catholic cemetery. Uh, I'm not so sure. I never asked myself or been asked this question. Well, will a priest go through... Ignore that part of the right. That would be a good question yeah, to would. ask it on would. one of the other four days when there are priests here. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, that's that's the theology of that. And the church also respects families. So if you've got non-Catholic family members among your children or your spouse, there's no reason you can't be buried in a Catholic cemetery. There's, I have never heard that there is an exclusion from that uh, from that fact. Uh, now, if someone randomly came up and, you know, said to most, most larger Catholic cemeteries are run by the archdiocese or diocese mm-hmm. in which they're in. You know, if they, somebody said, well, I'm not Catholic, but I want to be buried in St. Stephen's Cemetery or something like yeah. that, or Holy Cross Cemetery, then I think that would get addressed in, at that time. But certainly within families, there's absolutely no question of that possibility. Okay, Brian, thanks so much for your call. Here is Johnny in Lincoln, Nebraska, listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. Hey, Johnny, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, thank you for taking my call. What's on my mind is Lent, right, and fish. Fish on Fridays. Why does it have to be fish? Why can't it be steak? Why can't it be a hamburger, you know, a nice juicy burger? Why can't we have bacon? Uh, and why why is it Fridays? Like uh, I don't know why why don't why is it fish on Fridays? Why don't we have like a donuts on Monday or ice cream on Sunday? Donuts. Well, I hope you have your tongue in your cheek because I would think it'd be <laughs> obvious. <laughs> yeah, you know, Friday is the day on which our Lord died. It's yes. Good Friday. Sunday is the day on which He rose from the dead. We celebrate East, each Easter every Sunday as a little Easter. Uh, so it's a holy day of obligation every single week. So we have 52 holy days of obligation, uh, if you will, from that point of view. Uh, some of which also may, might be Christmas, New Year's, and other uh, high dates as well. So every Friday is a day in which we remember the Lord's Passion. Uh, there are many devotional practices that people follow on a Friday. The Church has a penitential practice, and it's not to eat fish. It's to abstain from eating meat. In, in, a, in other words, to make a conscious decision to give something up. And although I love fish and I love hamburgers as well, frankly, it's some kind of be annoying. Boy, I really could use a hamburger today, but it's a Friday and I'm not going to eat it. And so there is a level of penitence in there. So it's not that you're not, you can't, that you have to eat fish. It's that the church is saying that our Lord's flesh was nailed to the cross and therefore, as a universal penitence on Fridays, we will abstain from eating the flesh of animals. Now, we can, we can have a, all the vegetarian burgers you want. <laughs> right? The impossible burger? You, yeah. you can have that, you know, lobster Genovese or whatever fancy yeah. lobster dish yeah. is. Um, and it, you can love the dickens out of it. 
You just can't have a nice tenderloin. And it's, you know, on the, frankly, I think many Catholics would say, why is it on Friday? That's exactly when I want the <laughs> burger and the tenderloin. <laughs> and the penitents would say, no, I'm going to obey the church's penitential law. And that's actually, uh, actually, there is that still on the books for the entire year. Uh, it is. But, and, but the, the penance is up to you, or the, you know, right. what, what you're going to give up is up to you. Yes, yes and no. Uh, the document by which Paul VI, after the Second Vatican Council, promulgated uh, the penitential regime, mm-hmm. established also, and canon law reinforces this, that bishops' conferences can, ha- make, can change it. Uh-huh. Uh, they always did it, of course, by consulting with the Holy See. The U.S. bishops already in the 1960s made Fridays a day on which, in Lent, you're obliged to abstinence from meat. Sure. Outside of Lent, you can substitute another penitence or even other acts which would 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 show some, you know, reference to the specialness yeah. of yeah. Friday. Yeah. You know, you could you could do a charity. You could do charitable work down on the Skid Row or uh-huh. something like that, uh-huh. um, and and help the the people there, the indigent people. Do something like that that requires it. But penitence is the best uh, way of doing it, whether it's avoiding meat or not. And then some people could simply can't uh, not eat meat, whether they're medically constituted that they you know they they can't they need that protein, or whether it's you know they do hard physical labor and they need to eat large meals before they go out and and do that labor. Uh, So there can be excusing reasons there. Or if you if you're sick and you have the care of the sick, so if you're caring for your 80-year-old grandmother at home or something like this, and you're making her a nice hamburger on Friday because that's what she wants, you don't have to make two separate meals or three separate meals according to the number of people. Th- those who are caring for the sick can also be excused from uh, from the penitents as well. Simply that represents then their you could say the fact that they care, they have, have this concentrated care for an individual is itself a bit of a penance, and making two different kinds of meals would be uh, expecting sure. too great a sacrifice sure. in that situation. Johnny, thanks so much for your call. Hope that's uh, helpful for you. It is Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. Let's go now to Tim. Tim is listening in uh, Idaho this afternoon, and that is on the Great Salt and Light Radio. Tim, what's on your mind today? Okay, so I have, uh, I'm Catholic. My wife and I were invited to our our niece's wedding this summer. They're Catholic, but she's getting married uh, to a non-Catholic and not in the church. My question is, can I go? Can we go as Catholics? Uh, If she has the dispensation to do that, yes. If she does not, then the marriage won't be valid in the eyes of the church. That's the crux of the matter. So um, a non-Catholic, Catholics have a number of obligations with respect to marriage. The person who has the right, if you will, to marry them is their proper pastor. He can dispense, you know, maybe you want your your cousin uh, George, who's a priest, to marry you. Pastor says, fine, Father George can marry you. or maybe you're marrying the, you know, the daughter of an Episcopal minister, and her dad wants to marry. 
you can get a dispensation to be married in uh, in that church, because the church's theology is you're marrying each other. The trouble with Catholics getting married in those circumstances is if they don't get that dispensation, because the church plates a legal obstacle. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Yeah, you know legal obstacle to the validity of that marriage. It's so easily dispensed that I can't understand why anyone would not go to the little bit of difficulty if they're raised in a Catholic family, if they don't want to create problems for their uh, in-laws, their relatives, or maybe Catholic in-laws or others. Uh, it's an easy thing to do. You go to your pastor, you say, hey, I'm marrying before my husband's minister or my my fiance's minister, or rabbi even, can I be dispensed? Now, those are different dispensations, mm-hmm. and they, but they relatively easily obtained. Uh, so that's what needs to be done. And maybe she's done it, and you're just not aware of it or not. So that's the question to ask. Uh, but it would not be a valid marriage if she hasn't done it. You know, so different priests will say different things. Well, you know, you can go sit in the back. You can go to the reception or something. You don't want to break relations. I mean, these are possible choices. Uh, I'm not sure they're the best choices. Uh, it sort of says that I'm supposed to respect your conscience. You're not supposed to respect my, mine. You know, what's the what's the merit in that position? Mm, yeah. You know, so there's a lot, I think, to discuss. And maybe the first thing to do is ask one of the parents whether she's gotten this dispensation or not. Appreciate your call there, Tim. Thanks for listening to us on Salt and Light Radio out of Idaho. It is Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. You know, we have been talking about Lent this hour a number of times. EWTN Radio has you covered. If you'll tune in on Sunday, we've got three wonderful programs cooked up for you for the uh, second Sunday of Lent. You will hear a a wonderful Lenten Reflections. Those were recorded, um, uh, where were those recorded this year? That was at um, Walsingham, I believe, wasn't it? Uh, I'm not positive. I believe it was at the the Slipper Chapel. Yep. So do check that out. We've got a a variety of priests lined up to give you uh, reflections all Lent long, each and every Sunday of Lent. Also, the Lenten Parish Mission with Father William Casey of the uh, Fathers of Mercy. Fantastic uh, Lenten Parish Mission. And also Lent, A Season of Grace with Father Cedric Pesenia. Check it out by going to EWTNRadio.net, EWTNRadio.net, and then click on where it says Schedule. You'll be good to go. Let's talk now with Janet in Columbus, Ohio, listing on Amazon Echo. Janet, what's on your mind today? Uh, Yes, my question is how do we begin to forgive Putin for all the killing and atrocities he's committing in Ukraine? Well, it's probably not going to be within our power to forgive. First of all, I don't think he's going to ask. And we have no authority over him. Um, I think in our own hearts, we have to realize that, you know, Clearly, a person who does those things, their salvation is in the balance. I hope that there are people among his circle of, uh, of people that he knows and works with, and uh, uh, especially in the Russian Orthodox hierarchy, who would take that as a serious question. Um, 
But I think we have the only example we need on this, and that's Christ on the cross. Father, mm-hmm. forgive them, for they know not what they do. Yeah. Uh, this maybe goes back a little bit to a comment I made earlier to a caller about Aquinas saying nobody chooses evil per se or directly or because it's evil. I think some people may say that, but in a warped way, they, you know, I'm going to be a Satanist or I'm going to be this or that or the other thing. You know, maybe there's some element there, but they see they see that as somehow good for them, as a good for them. Um, or uh, or they don't even believe in it and they want to attack the church or yeah. Christ or something mm-hmm. like that. And so I think knowing that, we can always hope for any individual, whether they're a serial killer or whether they're the head of a government which seems to have lost its mind, um, some chance of conversion there and to pray for that. Uh, because in the end, he and God have this transaction to do. And only he and God can work out the outcome. And he better do it while he's still alive. Yeah, no kidding. So I think that's what we have to pray for. We should pray that this is the the essence of what it means to love somebody. We're not told we have to love Putin or Hitler or Mussolini or Stalin, we don't have to love love them in the sense of warm, cuddly feelings for them. We have to love them in the sense of desiring their greater good. We mm-hmm. would have, we would have desired for them, or desire now for them, if we could, that they stop doing evil and that they do good, and that they they find the path back to the Lord, and that they convert and they change before it's too late. And that's because we would we desire for them the eternal good, the God, God himself, that end of the road, that direction to which we are all are going, and we'll either arrive there or we'll go be sent as far away in the other direction as can be done. Yeah. You yeah. know? So I think understanding what love means to desire the good in material things and other things in life's behaviors and actions but to desire in particular the eternal salvation of the individuals. We should have that for every human being that exists. And um, uh, whether they're converted or not, that's going to be up to them ultimately because God is there. He only excludes those who say, I refuse to ask. And I'm not going to, I'm never going to do it, or I don't need to ask. Ouch. Jana, thank you so much for your call. Here is Maureen now in Colorado, listening on the EWTN app. Maureen, what's on your mind today? Uh, yes, I'm kind of calling in for a question for my husband. Uh-huh. Uh, he's um, been reading the Bible recently, and he was wondering where the um, in the Jewish faith the the law of circumcision and where it was um, when it was started and why was it started. Mm-hmm. He's kind of confused on that point. Sure. I? Um, I can't give you the answer on the Jewish understanding. I can give you what I, I believe to be that understanding. One is that circumcision was already widely practiced. So mm-hmm. it's not that, you know, there are a number of things in in Scripture that is quite clear where God allows the people to continue practices which they were already doing, and yet he gives it a new meaning that's in keeping with his divine plan for them, for the people Israel. 
bloody sacrifice was clearly one. We want to be like our neighbors. They asked for a king. They didn't want just to have the judges and others who the prophets that the Lord sent. We want to be like our neighbors and have a king. The bloody sacrifices was like their neighbors. We get a clear example in the book of Genesis of what God's idea of, of, of religious worship, sacrifice and religious worship is, when Abraham encounters uh, Melchizedek and the offering of the bread and wine, anticipating mm -hmm. the Holy Eucharist. So bloody sacrifice was not anything that, if God said, you know, to the Holy Spirit and Jesus, now, fellas, what are we going to put in this Jewish religion? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's have bloody sacrifice. No, he didn't right. do that. He took the Jews where they were, and he worked with them. Yeah. And so we see the transformation and through that transformation of giving religious meaning to those practices, we see how it then relates to the new covenant, which has none of those practices, where the sacrifice is an unbloody one by which we represent Christ's sacrifice on Calvary, where, the, uh, where there are no other kinds of sacrifice either for the birth of a child as Mary and Joseph had to do. Mm -hmm. Although we bring the child, we baptize them. So baptism, in a way, takes the place of that of the presentation and the purification and the, you know, and the circumcision of the male child. Now, circumcision, I think, is good in or was was practiced perhaps because in families you you need to you always know that the girls the girls coming from their mothers. Uh -huh are Jewish. Okay. The boys, hmm, what's the other side of that equation? <laughs> um, circumcision became a way of marking the man's entrance into Israel, the boy's entrance into Israel, and uniting him to the tribe Israel, as it were. So it had, it had sort of that racial context to it. But it also, as I, as I noted, other peoples were doing it. And we know that it's part of the covenant of Moses, but I believe that's because it pre-existed. Maureen, thank you so much for your call. Here is David now, a first-time listener in Chicago on WSFI. Hey there, David, what's on your mind today? Well, I've been hearing a lot of talk about Fatima all of my life. I've read the book, seen all the movies, and... I'm curious, what do you think about the prophecy of uh, the annihilation of nations, what's going on now with Russia, and the Virgin Mary saying, in the end, my Immaculate Heart will triumph, Russia will be converted. That's part A, so I'll let you go there, and I'm going to uh, tell you part B after this, when you finish. Well, I think, I think I answered that. Conversion can mean a number of things. I think ultimately it will mean the un not just the unity of the churches, of, 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 of Russians, uh, of the Orthodox and Catholics, but I think it means the, uni the unification of the churches. Nothing else in time will bring about the other conversions that Scripture speaks of. Our Lord tells us why he wants the unity of all in his church because by this the Gentiles will believe and as both scripture and the fathers of the church make clear it is that the Gentiles believing which will move the Jewish people and we will see the Jewish people come in 
towards the end of the world. So I think the role here is we are on a stage, and we've been on it for over 100 years, and whether it will last 10 years or 100, or 100 more years, uh, that's all in God's knowledge, and we sure. don't need to worry about that, you know. As Father yeah. Mitch says, well, we're in sales, I'm not in, you know, I'm in sales. That's, that's right. That's the job, okay? That's right. All right. Well, we're in sales. That's the job. The Lord will take care of the history and the timing of these things. So I think there is enough in the mystics without giving us a timetable that at some point there will be the, the unity of Christians, the conversion of the Jews, and then, as the Catechism of the Catholic Church describes in paragraph 668 and following, will come all the other events of the end, including the Antichrist and the return of the Lord and the end of human history. So I think that's where Fatima fits in. Now, there is a broader theology that goes back to Louis de Montfort, who says that as Christ came through Mary in his first coming, he will come through Mary in his second. Mm -hmm. Fatima directly addresses that because we are told that the Lord wishes all of this to in order to establish in the world devotion to my immaculate heart. In other words, to show and highlight the role of Mary in the economy of salvation, which not only the Protestants have denied, but many Catholics sort of, eh, okay, that's nice, it's a date on the calendar, you know, but what's Mary in my life? Many, m most Catholics probably not, but there are those who have downplayed Our Lady for the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. So to settle this question and to show Mary's power of intervention intercession and the other place at the beginning of the ministry of the Lord that was at Cana she kicked off in a way the public ministry of the Lord and she will kick off the final evangelization that leads to the evangel the completion of the evangelistic mission of the church and ultimately to the second coming of Christ but at whatever distance it is, and that's only in the Lord's knowing. So I think Fatima is important. It fits in with a lot of Marian theology developing over a hundred of years. And it's suggested also by Saint, uh, our Lord, Sister Faustina, who said, before I come in my justice, people need to go through my mercy or they yeah. will receive yeah. the justice. Okay. David, sorry we couldn't get to your second question, but you can hear the music playing. Julie in Illinois couldn't get to you at all. Please call us back next week. And uh, we will put you at the head of the line. Also couldn't get to the questions from Rachel and Danny on YouTube. Uh, please uh, resend those to us next week. Colin Donovan, have a great weekend. You as well. Let's Hope see every some snow. Yeah, that, why not? <laughs> Hope everybody has a great weekend. I'm Tom Price on behalf of our great team. Have a, next, have a wonderful weekend. See you next time.